When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, today's guest is singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist, John Parr, from Worksop England. Together we dissect the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the smash hit, St. Elmo's Fire, taken from the 1985 movie soundtrack of the same name. John was fresh off a tour for his first self-titled album, when producer David Foster contacted him to write a song together for a movie he was scoring called St. Elmo's Fire. The two wrote the song super quickly, and the lyrics were inspired by Rick Hansen, a Canadian paraplegic whose goal was to ride his wheelchair around the world, which he did, and the story which John explains is both amazingly touching and uplifting. I had fun connecting the dots on this one too, as many of the players involved we've either had as a guest here on Krista Makes a Podcast, or we've talked about at length. The musicians who played on this track are out of this world, and it was awesome to get John's take on all of it. If you were around in 1985, you know, it didn't get much bigger than the song, St. Elmo's Fire. So for all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Well, hey, John, how are you? I'm great, Chris. How are you? I am fantastic. I We were talking a little bit uh, before we got going here, and uh, I'm just ecstatic to be talking to you. Grew up listening to your music. I was familiar with you before St. Elmo's Fire with the track Naughty Naughty that was getting blasted. Hey, good on you, man. Yeah, <laughs> on commercial radio down in good old Florida, where, where I'm from. From then, it's just St. Elmo's Fire happened. And I, you know, as a kid, when you're on the radio, that was about as big as it got back then. So to me, it's like, oh, you were already this huge star with Naughty Naughty, but it was really, it really happened for you with St. Elmo's Fire. And it was, it was so cool to see. It exploded. I mean, it was recorded in Florida at Naughty Naughty, actually. Really? Where'd you record that? At Criteria. We did down at Criteria and um, down in Miami. It was uh, my first big kind of break i'd been in the biggest studios i've been in till then were probably the who my manager was um he'd been with the who he was keith's driver for from the 60s actually and then he became their road manager and then their their kind of creative manager and um yeah we were down in uh down in florida after being in the who studio at ramport in london 
down in Crytea for about six weeks and Naughty Naughty was just the warm-up song was the album was written and I just had this riff and we just kind of warm up on the riff and every day it got a bit more and more and then I kind of figured it was the one. Oh, that is so cool. And for the listeners, I've also recorded at Criteria, our first major label record my band did. We did the we cut the bass and drums down there and it was just so cool to be in a legendary studio. Everybody recorded there, the Eagles and it's legendary. So just uh, a a really really cool really cool studio and, and a, gr- a great history. But, you know, your album, uh, the self-titled one with Naughty Naughty came out in 1984. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you by the end of the tour, I guess, for the record, David Foster had asked you to record a song for the film St. Elmo's Fire. And David Foster, we've talked about him on this show. He's a Canadian musician, composer, arranger. Guy's got 16 Grammys. He... Uh, co-wrote She's a Beauty with the Tubes. We had the Tubes on here recently. What a song. Right. And there's your Toto connection because Steve Lukather played on She's a Beauty. And uh, David has history with Chicago and Peter Cetera. And when I looked at who played on St. Elmo's Fire, I love connecting the dots with this kind of stuff. It's so interesting. And of course, you know, backing vocals by Richard Page from Mr. Mister. And that makes sense now. And I never knew why he was considered. But when Peter Cetera had left Chicago, Richard Page from Mr. Mister, who already, you know, uh, he was a huge star with that band. He was asked to sing for Chicago, which he declined. And But the all-star band here, you have Steve Lukather playing on the track, David Foster, Steve Parcaro, and David Page, who we recently had yeah, on man. the show as well. <laughs> so, you know, and you look at the uh, Jerry Hay on trumpet. Jerry played on Thriller. He played on, on the... Uh, track rock with you and michael jackson he played with shaka khan earth wind and fire lionel richie yeah all the tongues are dead how did this happen with this uh stellar musical lineup it's incredible do you know what's strange chris you talk about connecting the dots what you know you know kind of on the broad headline but from my side it's bizarre i was i've been i've been a musician from being a little boy and turned pro when i was 12. i can remember my wife and I bought this little house in 1980 and we were really, really broke. And the albums that we had were the Earth, Wind and Fire one, the um, Toto four, Foreigner mm-hmm. four. And I can remember I'd be in tears listening to that music thinking, man, I'm never, ever going to be able to compete with this. And yet within a few years, they were playing on my records. We were friends. Uh, <laughs> you, you, and, of course, I was on tour with Toto when I got the call f- from David Foster. So they kind of filled me in on uh, on, on David because I didn't really know who he was. You know, I was, I was this kid from the north of England. I had looked. Uh, you had toured that first record, as you said, with Toto. You're playing 10,000-seat amphitheaters and, and, you know, arenas across the, uh, the U.S. I, w- I went back and looked at the tour dates. So that had to be surreal after what you just described about being broke three years earlier. It was really amazing because I can remember the first... I had a really great band. My uh, my band with me were, were the boys that had played on uh, on some of the recordings, and they were really killer players. And Toto really took to that because they were kind of kings of the hill at that time, you know. And sure. my, my band, you know, they'd say, man, you're matching us, you know. The, the boys were so hot. And, and they Toto was so magnanimous. They'd come up. I remember, you know, Steve coming up saying, my name's Steve Lucather. I'm David Page, as if I didn't know who they were, you know. Was, <laughs> and I always remember yeah. the first 
the very first sound check they they did their their warm-up and they said look let's give john an hour to do it so you never hear it man do you, you know you know what it's like when you're an opening act you know you get the breadth uh -huh. of what but they gave me the time and um and, and they gave me their friendship i i used to travel on the t on their tour bus all the time with uh with steve and jeff we were big pals I love hearing stories like that because especially back, you, you hear the stories, you know, the the bands back in the 80s, they would limit your PA use yeah, or the, the amount of stage room and, they you know, their crew would treat you like second-class citizens and it sounds like you, you got along really well from the get-go. The opposite, the opposite. And it's funny, you know, I think that's the way you can tell things. My manager was an old, you know, he was kind of an old scholar. He'd been in the game for 30 years and, and he said to me, just the way that the other band's crews treat you will tell you where you're going. And I guess a lot of crew members could see that I was maybe on the way up and thought, hey, maybe there's a long-term gig here too, you know. And and so the crews were always really nice with me as well, you know. And uh, In fact, some of my pals from even from those days are the crews from those bands, you know. Had you, uh, you know, expressed interest or told anybody at the label or, or told David Foster, hey, I want to use my band, or was it always going to be be the players that played in this? And what did your band think of that? No, I mean, the, the John Par 1 record was was kind of my mu musicians, and I produced the record. And mm -hmm. um, But then, um, obviously, with, with St. Elmo's, I knew I was, in, I was on hallowed ground with David. And, of course... It's like, who are you going to call? You know, it's the greatest people in the world are on the end of a phone. And I can remember that, you know, the recording of that record took place over a day. And it was like Jerry Hay came in. Then um, Michael Landau came in. Bush, 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 you know, it was uh, three-hour sessions and everybody was just, I'd never seen anything like it. It was just dynamite, you know. Well, and, and when you're talking about studio musicians of this caliber, the, you know, there was nothing to fix things. There wasn't uh, pro tools. Okay. No. These guys were what I call ringers. They come in and they just nail their parts. They don't mess up. And if they do mess up, it, it's not messing up in the sense they hit, we're hitting wrong notes. It's like, maybe you didn't like the part and they can improvise on the spot. It's incredible. Exactly. It's funny when you were talking about Richard Page, because it should have actually been uh, Richard Marks. Uh, doing the uh, the backup vocal on San Elmo's. Really, it was Richard's day off, and uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and so uh, yeah, Richard Page came in and did the "Just How Far I Go" line and some of the BVs. I always say to Richard Marks, "Man, imagine what your career would have been like if you'd have just <laughs> on my record." Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned Richard Marks because I noticed that Bill Reichenbach Jr., who played trombone on St. Almost Fire, and Jerry Hay, who we talked about a moment yeah. ago and you just mentioned with trumpet, they played on some Richard stuff uh, late, later in the 80s. So it's just a Same circular. Yeah, thing. yeah. It, you know. It's incredible. And I also want to mention that Dave Amato uh, provided backing vocals. He was uh, the guitar player. Uh, since the beginning for Ario Speedwagon. And also I noticed that Carlos Vega, a huge session player who had played uh, with James Taylor, uh, among others, he is credited with drums on this track, but I swear this is a drum machine on this track. Well, it was, do you know, the strange thing, I'd never seen it. It was uh, Roger Lynn made this drum machine. I'm sure you're aware yeah. of the Lynn mm -hmm. drum. And this was the very first drum machine that had real drum samples in it. And it was the prototype, so it literally was, you know, the Lindrum one. And there was wires hanging out of it. And, yeah, we just we just put – there's only David and I originally when we wrote the song. And we put the uh, put the Lindrum down, and David, you know, did the piano and the, and the bass synth on it. And I agree with you. You know, I think 
uh, Umberto Gattaca clearly put some big uh, of his, you know, drum samples on top. I think the toms, I think probably the toms and the hat are the, uh, are the live additions. Okay, I was going to say the hat does sound live on here. That yeah. does sound live. And, and, and the toms, they sounded very 80s sounding, perfect for this track. Huge. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, these these big huge toms. I think there's some of those syndromes, you know, those do do hang underneath yes. the, underneath the kit as well. It's like throw the okay. kitchen sink, but everything had to be bigger than life, didn't it? And then you know, it it certainly did. And and speaking of bigger in life, you know, this song is it's so triumphant and hopeful. You know, the only other song, and I know there's other ones, but there's a couple songs that come to mind, like from the 80s. It's like Eye of the Tiger, Chariots of Fire, you know, these songs that define a generation. And this song is just so uplifting and powerful. Thank you, man. It's funny. I I took a year off. I've just been completing a film. It's a documentary and it's... uh, but we use we use an orchestral version of San Almos at the end and a brand new version of it, which is kind of, you know, that Joni Mitchell track when she she sings. I've looked at life from both sides now, but it's the really old version. It's like it's a bit like a Johnny Cash Empire of Dust. And I got a version of San Almos like that. And it's funny in both in both versions in this movie, it explodes, still explodes out the uh, out the screen, you know. And do you recall writing it? Was it a quick process or, or did you labor over this one? It's burned into my brain. It's funny, you know, it's like people always say there are two truths, aren't there? There's your truth and the other person's. And I, <laughs> I, was, I had dinner with David about a year ago and we would, he was talking about the writing of it. And um, we'd not seen each other for a while. And it's funny, his memory was quite different. But I think you've got to imagine David's, you know, must have done how many thousands of hits as David, you know, or tracks he's recorded. And I've done a lot, but I mean, that was like a blinding light in the middle. So I have a pretty good idea of what went down. And so, yeah, I went to Lighthouse Studios in LA. Uh, he'd called me and said, would, would I come over? So it's a little studio called Lighthouse. And it was um, all done in the, nearly all done in the control room. David didn't want to write the song. He he was exhausted. He was doing the Sen Almost Fire score, which he'd never done a score for a movie before. So it's a lot of pressure. And he was also doing 10 original uh, songs for the film with original artists. So it was like wow. a massive thing. And so when I went, he said, look, man, I'm burned. You know, will you sing this? And it, it was an okay song, but it wasn't what I'd gone there for. And I kind of had to persuade him to just give me half an hour and let's go in the control room and try and write something. And we, we were batting stuff around for about an hour and we kept coming up with these, what I thought were great things. And he changed. He just kept, kept saying, we can do better. He was hooked. We can do better. And the third one in was St. Elmo's. And, um, <laughs> you know, was um, lightning in a bottle. The biggest, the longest thing about that, the writing of that song was that Beatles chord to get out of the chorus back into the key down back uh-huh. to the first. And I can remember him, because I had so little to do with the physical music. All I did was sing the melody. I, I kind of wrote the melody over those beautiful chords. Mm-hmm. And then obviously that night I went back to the hotel and wrote the lyric. But um, my biggest memory is uh, that he was just spending forever. It was how to get back to that A chord. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that part's 
awesome. And you could makes it. Yeah, it does make it. And you can tell that. Uh, well, at least I, I think it, it, you know, when, when someone composes on the piano, they, they typically will do some weirder key changes than just a guitar player. I find, yeah, you know, <laughs> me too. It's like a magical world. It's like another planet, isn't it? You know, it, it really is. And you know, this guy's workload, David Foster, you were just talking about how, how much stuff he had going on. You know, he had 47 Grammy nominations to have that many. You have to have quantity of songs think yeah. of how many songs he wrote outside of that it's amazing you know it is amazing and even now i kind of discover things that he did you know he, uh i i mean i didn't realize he'd done after the love is gone until we were talking last year and i was saying i wow. think san Amos was his first number one and he went no no i think after the love is gone but i don't think it was i think that was number two you know So good. Well, I want to jump into the song now. John, it's four minutes and eight seconds. The intro is four bars of hi-hat panned off left. And as we talked about, I think that's that's real real hi-hat there. It's not a, not a machine making that. And an electric piano comes in. On bars five through eight, the drums are in, as is a, I think this is a Yamaha DX7. Is that correct? Playing the bass part? Yes. Okay, it sounded like it, and again, we just had David Page on here, who was credited with this song. So I figured this was the was that was the DX7, and that DX7 is playing a galloping bass part uh, on bar seven, a cool guitar lick swirling left to right, and then a very '80s sounding drum fill takes us into verse one. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I love it. We don't even have to put the put the sample in. John just did it for us. <laughs> <laughs> that drum part is so 80s it just screams 80s it's great but the bit before that is that beautiful harmonized guitar bit not the riff not the dare but that little mm -hmm. sound, I, I don't know how it made that sound it's so magnificent it is it's such a great flourish well uh verse one and I want to talk to you about this because I could make an argument that yeah. the first two lines here are the verse and then you get a pre-chorus that goes back to the verse yeah Growing up, you don't see the writing on the wall. Passing by, moving straight ahead, you knew it all. But maybe sometime, if you feel the pain, you'll find you're all alone. Everything has changed. Do you know that it was not written for the, about the movie? It was written about a wheelchair athlete called Rick Hansen. I did read that, yes. So, basically, I didn't see the film before I wrote the lyric. All I did was uh, Joel Schumacher, the director, came down because I was really struggling 
to get inspiration for the lyric. And he came down because he'd written it to try and sell the story. And it just wasn't hitting home with me. And um, David showed me a video of a, a local news broadcast of uh, a guy from Vancouver who'd recently broken his back in a, in a car accident. And he was already a, a, an athlete, but he, but he was going to be decided he was going to be a wheelchair athlete. And he was going to wheel this wheelchair around the world to raise money for spinal research and uh, m- make money and awareness. So what I wanted to do was tell his story about this man's journey around the world. But I also wanted to make it ambiguous so the film company wouldn't exactly know I was singing about something else. So when I talk, but obviously at this stage, it's about a kid who is just a teenager. He's a jock and, uh, you know, he's got the world at his feet and all he can see is what's in front of him. And suddenly, man, that toolbox smashed into his back, broke his spine and uh, it grounded him, you know. And uh, so really that's what it is, you know. Growing up, you don't see the writing on the wall, you know. It's like you just think you're going to rock all the way through it, you know. And, uh, yeah, moving straight ahead, you knew it all, you know. You're just pass- passing through. And, and, of course, he man, he got this anchor dragging behind him now. Wow. Now, did you read the story of this fella and decided that that was the inspiration? No, or? no they, they just showed me, David showed me the video cassette and he said it's nothing to do with the movie. He said, but this guy came in the studio last week and he's on the Man in Motion tour and uh, he wants to wheel. And and there was no publicity because wheelchairs, you know, this was, the Paralympics didn't make it on television much in those days, you know. And if you saw somebody right. in a chair, you didn't really know where to look. And there was no Facebook, there was no there was no internet. So this guy had got no publicity and it was just not a, a hot story. And for me, it was such an incredible story that I thought would unfold. So I wanted to tell the story of what this journey would be. That's awesome. Well, on the line, but maybe sometime if you feel the pain, you'll find you're all alone. Everything has changed. There you have it. The melody changes there. Yeah. So that that to me is a pre-chorus that then comes back down for the second half of the verse. Yeah. Play the game. You know you can't quit until it's won. Soldier on. Only you can do what must be done. You know in some way you're a lot like me. You're just a prisoner and you're trying to break free. Well, it's entirely wheelchair-based at that moment in time. But of course, but now when you set back, it's an everyman's story, an every woman's story. But in that moment, it's entirely about this guy, you know, he's in the chair, he's a prisoner. You know, and he's he's trying to break free. He's trying to he's trying to show he can still do it. But also, you know, uh, in the movie, uh, I knew that these kids were struggling with, you know, that rite of passage. So I thought, well, I could get away with my directness about the guy in the chair without physically saying it, and everybody will still think it's Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez struggling with, you know, <laughs> turning, you know, getting into an older student. <laughs> 
Yeah, the the actors from the actual movie. Yeah, and, and who does who doesn't uh, who can't get behind a lyric of perseverance and and you know being being triumphant? And this is universally speaking here. You wouldn't directly relate it to being in a chair. What this guy's struggles were. It's difficult as well because it's kind of the story of me, and I have to be careful not to be. You know, you could accuse me of being cliche, but it's like really from the heart. You know, for me, it's like it's such a passionate cause. Uh, the two things in my life are kind of the military and disablement, and they're my kind of two uh, my two tortures that I've carried for more than half my life. And so to get that opportunity to kind of tell that story in that company, you know. Well, would you agree that the back half of these verses act as kind of like a pre-chorus? So the melodies change on them, you know. They're it's it's a different feel here. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah it's it's kind of you've got this kind of. Um, dark bit and then this kind of really kind of even even though those pre-chorus bits there they've got that kind of pain in them haven't they you know the yes you know soul soulful pain in them yeah absolutely you know when i research for these episodes i'll go and i'll go to different guitar chord pages on the internet and, yeah and, and scour different things not one time that i see pre-chorus they all considered this a verse and i'm i kind of was like i disagree with that so i wanted to get your take on it it, it's, yeah. it seems there's a separation there my, it's funny, yeah you call it a pre-chorus i call them links but nearly everything i write is that format you know, I always, you know, sometimes you get lucky, don't you? And the chorus comes in your first verse and that becomes the song. But really, I've always gone and gone verse, you know, link, verse, link, chorus, you know. Never heard it called a link. I may, yes. have, to, uh, may have to start using your vernacular there, John. <laughs> I like it. Well, there's a lot going on here in verse one. Uh, the drums are in off the top with that DX7 playing the bass. Uh, and big piano chords are here on all the chord changes on the pre-choruses. There is another arpeggiated synth part that comes in. And I think maybe a guitar is, is mimicking yes. behind that. Do you recall? Yeah, that's you're dead right. Yeah. yeah. It's like really funny. You know, it's like depending... Obviously, it's originally vinyl, you know, and you're listening. But mm -hmm. now, as, as it kind of gets remastered, you suddenly start hearing other bits where different kinds of digital compression comes in. You suddenly start to you, – it's almost like you see the underwear, don't you, of, of how that <laughs> was done. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, on the second half of verse one, the trumpet panned off right comes in. And are those keys ghosting that tr those trumpets too there? <laughs> I don't think so, but it's really funny, you know, had that song not had a deadline on it, David would have took those out. You know, the dead, 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 dead. Is that, yeah. That? Yeah, David would have, he thinks that, he thought they were too corny, you know, but. but Really? Yeah, it's funny. It's, but I mean, everybody knows that bit now, you know, but yeah, oh. he, but given a week, they would have gone, you know, so I'm, I'm glad they didn't. Yeah, I don't think there's uh, any <laughs> any dead weight in this song. No. I wouldn't take anything out of it. Uh, on the line, play the game. There's this quick. It's like a like a lightning bolt strikes. These uh, big distorted guitars just wow, come in for a yeah. quick second there. Yeah, and it's just little production flourish that I love. Those trumpets come right off uh, after the line. Play the game. You know you can't quit until it's won. You get that trumpet panned yeah. off right, and it swells into the word soldier on. You get that guitar thing again on the second line. Uh, what must be done. That guitar happens. And on the last two lines, that arpeggiated synth part, and those guitars come back in. Before you get the big drum hit, doom, 
panned off right, and then a trumpet stab that takes us right into chorus one. Very Jerry, isn't it? That only Jerry can make that slur on that trumpet that way, you know. It is awesome. Yeah. get two little hook setups that doom that it's just a simple drum thing you know that happens and then the trumpet stab right yeah. after it is such a perfect setup for the chorus it's one of those pieces i can remember when we used to do early early on when we used to do the uh the song in the days of the emulator two do you remember the old emulator two i do and we we used to have all jerry's stuff on there so you just hold a key down and it would play the actual brass line and some of those brass lines in isolation they're just i mean we're used to hearing them stick the their their head out like on songs like rosanna you know but on sonamos mm-hmm. they're they're buried more but they're so wonderful i mean it was i never heard anything like that jerry a brass section it was just so special and and such an integral part of of the song yeah just the general nature of horns when used correctly can be triumphant. I mean, look at sports games. They have the, they have the, the marching band. It's, it, it's a triumphant uh, uh, call of celebration. And I can't imagine this track without the horns. No. They just bring such a, a great uh, you know, quality to it. Absolutely. Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We got lots more with John Parr after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. And now, back to the show. Yeah, well, chorus one. I'm going to read the lyrics here, John, and have you break them down. I can see a new horizon underneath the blazing sky. I'll be where the eagle's flying higher and higher. Going to be your man in motion. All I need is this pair of wheels. Take me where my future's lying, St. Elmo's fire, and you get five oohs after that little <laughs> vocal vocal scat there. Over the chord change, yeah. Yes, over that chord change. Yeah. What's happening lyrically here? What what are we continuing to say? Well, that's Rick Hansen wheeling up a mountainside, and he's looking at uh, St. Elmo's fire is a freak of nature. It's when phosphorus burns in the sky. So the, it's uh, St. Elmo's, the patron saint of, uh, of sailors, fishermen also in some countries. And it's when the phosphorus glows around the ship's mast, sometimes around airplanes' wings. And to me, this was Rick wheeling up a mountain uh, and he could see St. Elmo's fire burning in the sky and he was wheeling towards his dream. That was his dream. And again, you know, um, it fitted because it said St. Elmo's Fire. Very often film companies don't want you to say the name of their movie in the song. 
it sounds strange. I've had it loads of times with when I did the Running Man, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. They wanted me to take Running Man out, you know, because they've lived with the title for five years, so it's a dead title. You know, it's not like you just wrote a song and you record it, but a movie's they've lived with that title. And for them, it, I guess it would lose the magic. But fortunately, they didn't get a chance to change their mind. It was such a tight deadline. And it fitted as a metaphor for Rick's dream, you know. That's really interesting. I never would have thought that, that movie companies would, would have not wanted the name. You, you think of Ghostbusters. That's the exactly. first one that comes to mind. Yeah. You know, and you, you're like, wait a second. So that's a really interesting take. The other thing uh, I wanted to bring up was whose idea was it? You know, the song's called St. Elmo's Fire, but in parentheses, it, it says Man in Motion. Yeah, that's me. Because when Rick set off from Vancouver on his on his tour to go around the world, there was nobody with him other than the guy. When the accident happened, the, the guy that had was in the accident with him, he was the relief driver for Rick. So there was a truck that was going to go around the world and Rick was behind it in the wheelchair. And on the side of the truck, it said, Rick Hansen, Man in Motion World Tour. So I was insistent that I called it Man in Motion. And because the deadline was so tight, I thought we could get it past the film company before they kind of woke up to what is this all about. And we did. Wow, well, that's interesting. You know, a lot of times labels would make you put something, uh, you know, in parentheses. Yeah. Like the, there, you'd be your your wordy song title, but it, the the song title wouldn't be in the lyrics. But there'd be a refrain somewhere in the song of exactly. you know, I I got you over and over again, and you know, so that that'd yeah. be like you know whatever the song title was, and then I got you. Yeah. <laughs> so I, that's interesting that that you wanted you you called for it to be Man in Motion. I just thought that this guy's just not going to get any press or any. I just wanted to give it as much air oxygen as i could and i remember you know that i was touring a lot at that point and uh i would always tell his story i was touring with tina turner doing the private dancer tour and every night i would tell the story of this guy he's you know he he was only a few months into the journey at that point but i would say he's going to make it and this is his song i mean it took him two two years two months and two days to wheel 50 miles a day around the world in a wheelchair and so I'd be telling that story every night long before he ever did it, you know. That is awesome. Well, you, you just mentioned about that turnaround on the oo's that you have. You get that, that that weird chord, and then it's a two-bar turnaround on the A chord. I call it uh, this reset. It's a reset for the verse. Stereo guitars and horns are here. And at the very end here, right before we get into verse two, I call it the 80s video game synth sound that takes us into verse two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you recall when the sounds were going down in the studio? Was there some like for that for that sound, for instance, was there any like, hey, maybe we should try a different one or was it just like, that's it. Everyone's in agreement. It literally was like it was like putting a jigsaw together and it was literally like somebody just picked a piece up and put it in. And I don't recall anybody going that didn't fit you know it was it yeah. literally was kind of meant to be lightning in a bottle you know and i can you know like even with the guitars you were talking about those guitar sounds david would say to michael landau can you give a, a bit more juice on that and he'd just click a pedal and there'd be you already thought he was there and yet there was this other element that he would just at the you know a bit more a bit more right hand and a bit more of the pedal and bang you know it just kept rising and rising you know I got goosebumps, Steve man. Bodica, you know. Steve Bodica was playing keyboard. That's right, as well, I believe, on that. Yeah. That's so cool. I, like, I, I got goosebumps because I, you know, this is, 
my listeners have heard me say it. This is, you know, driving around as a kid, listening to this song in my, my parents' car. I never thought in a million years I would get the breakdown like this. It's so cool. Verse two is probably one of my favorite parts of the song because of some of the production stuff that happens. Burning up. Don't know just how far that I can go. And there's a backing vocal, just how far I go. Soon be home, only just a few miles down the road. I can make it. I know I can. You broke the boy in me, but you won't break the man. You imagine if you're in that wheelchair and you're doing 50 mile a day, and if you want to give up, when you open the door to give up, there's no press back. You can just go home and nobody knows. You know, it was just mm. there were just two guys. It wasn't a story anybody knew. And it was like, if, if at the end of this thing, you, you go on and you just click some of the footage and you can see, this is what I saw, you know, uh, this little 10-minute video thing by a local news station in Vancouver. And it was a guy driving through, you know, just wheeling through the rain or, or he got ice packs on his shoulders. And it, this man, he tore both shoulder blade muscles four weeks into it. And um, coming from Canada, as soon as he got on the American roads, the cops put him on the B roads because they said he was holding traffic up. So he was like wheeling on dirt tracks. And all he had was a bucket, you know, to throw a dollar in, you know. And so that's it, you know, burning up, don't know how far I can go. Soon be home, only just a few miles down the road. It's like he's he's hypnotizing himself in my head, you know. And you said something so profound a, a second ago, talking about there was no one there keeping tabs. He Nobody just packed up and went home. Yeah, man. When he tore his shoulders, you know that him and it, there was only him and his buddy, and they said, you know, you might as well forget it, man. You know, it's like we'll do it again. And he just didn't quit. He just didn't quit. You know, again, the word perseverance and yeah, the song just, just, just speaks to that. Well, again, probably one of my favorite parts of the song is here in verse two, because this killer clean, like jazz chorus sounding guitar comes in. It's really sparkly. Uh, and I'm assuming that's Steve Lukather. It's just awesome. Sounds like a strap kind of out of phase, doesn't it? That yes, yes. Kind of, kind of um, long train running kind of vibe. It's almost a little funky too. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so good. And the backing vocals here, just how far I go, was that uh, Dave and Richard? Because it almost sounded like women singing that backing vocal No, it's vocal Richard there. Page. Just how far it I is. Go. It is Richard Page. I know how, I know his, his voice is high, yeah. but yeah. man, that sounds like, like women singing that. On the line, soon to be home, only just a few miles down the road. The horns come in here. Love what what the horn textures are doing there. And then the pre-chorus, I can make it. I know I can. There's a great new electric piano part that comes in there. And on the last line, we get that drum hit again with that stab on the trumpet to take us into chorus two. Eagles flying higher and higher Gonna be a man in motion 
and I'm calling this one and a half choruses yeah. because we get a we get a half on the back. So the first uh, half of the chorus here is all the same lyrics as chorus one. Yeah. I didn't mention earlier, there's only one harmony here, and the harmony is on St. Elmo's Fire. On that line, you get a harmony. The rest of it isn't harmonized, but it does sound like the choruses are double-tracked vocally. Do you recall? Yeah, I mean, it, it became... That really became a way that I recorded from then on. Uh, what I'll tend to do is um, verses always single, the links or the, the pre-choruses, I like to have such a subtle double track of me. And then yes. the choruses, I, I will have a... I usually, my double tracking, I really try to make it really kind of Peter Satiratite, you know, that kind of, mm -hmm. you can't quite tell it's double track. So I do like it. And my voice, I'd not really discovered, and David discovered it, that there's the kind of a, a little bit of magic to my voice when there's two of me. It just kind of makes that kind of almost a human harmonizer kind of vibe, you know. It's awesome. I mean, the the only part in the songs, the middle eight, uh, the bridge, really, where I can hear that double. And I like that I can hear it there. It's great. We'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. But um, the other half of chorus two, the lyric changes here. It's, I can climb the highest mountain, cross the wildest sea. I can feel St. Elmo's fire burning in me, burning in me. It's really strange because um, he literally did cross mountain ranges and he crossed deserts he also wheeled across the great wall of china as well so not all of it but a, a, a lot a great part of it and he and of course he was famous by then when he, when he did the great wall of china uh, a million chinese people were lining the streets singing san Elmo's fire it was amazing oh, but so um, cool you can't imagine you know again you know you at that moment in time you know you, you, you i was kind of sharing his dream you know and trying to just tell that story but I can remember doing the vocal. I think I think that's part of the reason the song lives on because lots of people tell me they got through illnesses with it and got through college with it and difficulties in their life. Um, and I think because I'm kind of the vessel for Rick's story and I was kind of all consumed, I knew, I knew in that moment what we'd done. It wasn't a surprise to me that this thing became what it became. It was like God-given. I just felt it. I remember going... I went to the restroom after I sang the song and I, I'd never done it in my life. I fell to my knees and I gave thanks for what I'd been given. I knew I'd been given something and uh, that's what we captured, you know, in that, you know, in that moment. It's so beautiful how much that touched you and how it came through in song. It's meant is, to be, yeah, man. That is so cool. Thank you for sharing that. There's a big drum fill after chorus two that takes us into an eight bar turnaround, like a musical interlude before the bridge. There's a cool synth uh, and horn and guitar interplay that's happening here. And uh, the, it, basically this turnaround is the chorus chord progression played in A. I love where the chords and the and the keys here and how it's it it's awesome. <laughs> I'm at a loss for words how they inter interject together. I can remember when when uh, David, you know, had got had always got that intro. So even before he wrote the song, he'd always got because he'd used it in the movie. And I can remember because it was his first uh, 
movie score, he, he confided in me, and I don't think he'd mind me saying, obviously he worked with Quincy Jones a fair bit, and he would ring Quincy and say, look, you know, he was looking for a bit of encouragement because you're in virgin territory. You, you might have so many Grammys, but a movie score is different. And Quincy said to him, man, if you've, got a, if you've got a theme, if you've got something, milk it for all it's worth, just keep going, you know. And so fortunately, that bled into the song, became the intro of the song, and obviously came into that, just that shot. It's like a new character walking into a movie, isn't it? And it comes, It is. And it takes it and, and just lifts it up another peg, you know. It is, it is so good. Well, the the second half here, when we get into the bridge, all the instruments I just spoke of, the horns and the and, and the synths, they all go up an octave. Yeah. And it sounds like there's some really cool tubular bell sounds. I don't know if that was done on the keys or what here. Do you recall? I think that's DX. I think that's that that great DX that, that uh, my old buddy... Um... Harold Faltermeyer did for Top Gun. Remember that the low one, the low uh, two. Yeah, that start. Everybody knows that's that start Top Gun, you know. And it's that, but probably two octaves higher. It's so cool because it just lifts this whole part, and this whole thing is, uh, you know, just the, the when you start singing, it's a lifting moment in and of itself. Yeah. And when everything goes up an octave, it's great. Just once in his life, a man has his time, and my time is now. I'm coming alive. There's a bit in the movie where um, Emilio Estevez, he's been chasing the girl all along and can't get her. And he's invited to the cabin to meet her and her boyfriend. But as he leaves, she kind of rushes up and kisses him. And, and it's kind of, I should have, I made the wrong choice kind of thing and that was his moment that was for once in his life a man has his time but of course not really it was about rick when he eventually pushed through the tape in my mind when he got back to vancouver having done twenty five thousand miles but i knew the film company would buy it because you know they think it was a, a you know emilio getting the girl and i'm sorry if you mentioned already if you, did you ever get a chance to meet rick or his family yes yeah i mean uh i know rick pretty well david and i because as you can imagine over that two years two months there were a lot of hurdles to get over and money wasn't coming in you know this which they weren't funded there was no sponsor so we, david and i would do benefits so we, uh, particularly when they got back to canada he was six months late so he was trying to cross canada east to west in the canadian winter and you know, oh. it can be minus minus forty, you know. And uh, <laughs> so we had to get him a, a four wheel drive chair made that worked with chains that drove the front wheels. So we did a few shows uh, to raise money for that, and we did a deal with uh, McDonald's because he was starting to raise money and awareness. McDonald's said to me, "Look, if you let us change the lyric a little bit, we'll put fifty cents for every burger we sell for six weeks into the fund." So we did that. That put about six million into the, you know, into the coffin. Wow. Uh, it was amazing. But yeah, I did a thing with Rick about uh, three months ago. He just got inducted into the Natural History Museum of Canada, where all the memorabilia from Man in Motion, the wheelchair, well, all the chairs, the clothes and everything, and now part of, you know, uh, a Canadian hero section in uh, 
in, in, the, in the museum. That's so cool. Well, you know, I've heard St. Almost Fire hundreds and hundreds of times over the years. And until I get under the microscope here, and this has happened with other songs, I, I just trip out sometimes. And, and here's another one of those moments. We get into chorus three. You don't see this a lot, John, where the lyric changes. Yeah. Right off the top. Usually you'll get like in the in the second chorus here, the back half changes, you know, and yeah. you know, the end of a song. But but here it's right off the top and, and I love this lyric. I can hear the music playing. I can see the banners fly. Feel like a man again. I'll hold my head high. Gonna be your man in motion. All I need is this pair of wheels. Take me where my future's lying. St. Elmo's fire. So you get the back half, but those first two lines were different. How did that come about? Was there ever any fear of, of changing the first two lines of the last chorus? It was the third act. So it's like in a movie or in a play. I told the story at the beginning what happened in the middle. So I wanted the success. So this is him wheeling back into Vancouver two years before he did. And a million people lying in the streets and brass bands playing, you know, dead, 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 all the bit. And that's exactly what did happen. But I, two years after I sang it. So that's, <laughs> that's telling the future really. So that's what I saw in my mind that, that he was wheeling back into his hometown. And when he left, Three men and a dog waved him off on a rainy day, you know, in 1985. And when he returned, millions of people. You know, we David and I played the, the that day the 25,000 people in the in the uh, in the arena. It was as he wheeled through the tape was just spectacular. Oh, that is that is awesome. And David made me sing the line. Have you noticed the meter of the line is different on the second line? Yes. Yeah, that was David because. Everything else is like really kind of machine gun. Da, 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 da. Well, let me think. Um, I can hear the music playing. I can see the man is flat. Normally I would have gone feeling like a man again, but they went feel like a man. Made me stretch it. I love the melody change there. Yeah. And also, I'm happy I got the lyric right, John, because on like 15 different sites, the, they have the lyric. But most of them are wrong. Yeah, it's, uh, the lyric was, feel like you're back again it's and wrong. hope riding it's high. Completely like, wrong. What is that? Feel like yeah. again. I mean, it's just somebody listening. It, I never say going to be your man in motion either. I always say going to be a man in motion. And, it, yes. and it's like, uh, feel like a man again, I'll hold my head high. Maybe it's just my diction on the, ra on the, on the record, but 
Yeah, I've noticed people get that line wrong, you know. Well, uh, the other thing I love here, right off the top, I can hear the music playing, I can see the banners fly. We get a harmony there. The harmonies weren't in the, there in the other choruses. Yeah. And on the line, going to be your man in motion. All I need is this pair of wheels. Harmony there. The horns here are now playing a new fluttery horn part with these great stabs. What, they, what they're doing here is just phenomenal. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. I mean, that's real kind of Earth, Wind and Fire. But of course, Jerry did a lot of that Earth, Wind and Fire stuff as well, you know. Mm -hmm. And of course, Phil Collins milked it to death, didn't he? On, uh, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Phil. Phil made a career out of it. Susudio or whatever, you know. Yeah, but um, whenever we do it live, and you never hear it, it's going on the top end in the chorus, isn't it? And it's like you hardly hear it, but it just, it's like almost doing a tambourine part, but it's actually kind of fifths and a, and a thumb down on the, on the, on the keyboard, you know? Was, I was going to say, that was the DX7 again, right? That comes that was in a there. DX7, I think, and Davey doing that thing. Again, it's those harmonies. That's, you know, that's why he's got so many Grammys. It's like we can just take it another bit further. It's like milking it dry, isn't it? It's just putting every bit in, you know? And that part has like this almost overtone that, like, often the left speaker, it's like something's happening there, and I don't know exactly. I think it's no, the you DX7. can't figure it. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's 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 really awesome. Well, the second part of chorus three is the same lyrics uh, that we get in the other choruses. I can see a new horizon underneath the blazing sky. We get a harmony there. The second line on higher and higher, we get a harmony. The third line going to be your man in motion. All I needs this pair of wheels. There's harmonies on that, and of course, there's a harmony on. St. Almost Fire. And then we get the last uh, part of the chorus here, which is uh, the turnaround lyric in chorus two. I can climb the highest mountain, cross the wildest sea. There's a harmony there. I can feel St. Almost Fire burning in me, burning, burning in me. I can feel it burning. Ooh, burning inside of me. And it starts to fade there on that line, burning in me. The song fades out and it comes to, to an end. What was it like hearing this for the first time, uh, the, the mix that you got back? What, what were your thoughts? Just like Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and saying, was that, was that such a big deal for me? Yeah? I mean, success came quite late to me, and FM radio was huge in, 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 in the 80s in America, and we just didn't have stereo radio and certainly not pumping like that. So I always remember hearing, uh, hearing Naughty Naughty on the radio for the first time and it exploding out of the speakers. I always wanted that to be a song that made you pull over and, and, and kind of listen to what was going on. But Sinamo's Fire sonically just took a different dimension on because I, I obviously it's David and Umberto Gattica who mixed it, but they he can get a dimension to the mix that's still hard to top. The speaker is full from top to bottom, isn't it, with with sound and clarity. Yeah. The, it, it never ceases to amaze me that uh, just the sonic of it, you know. It, I think that's what strikes me the most is that what you just said, the clarity. I cranked it up last night in my car. I went to go get groceries. And yeah. I just cranked it. I listened to it like three times. And I'm like... This song's almost 40 years old, and it sounds absolutely yeah. amazing. I wouldn't change a thing. No, it is. It, it, uh, it, and also, it's a very difficult thing to be a part of for the rest of your career because, obviously, you're, you're chasing it on every level. 
on every level. Right. You know, I mean, vocally, I was at my absolute peak. I'd just come off off the uh, off the Toto tour, you know. So I'd been screaming John Parr one record every night with them. I'm sure being out with them upped your game too. You you, oh, you want to boy, <laughs> boy man? You I mean you're with the kings, you know. I mean yeah. that was the the blessing of my my I did my my life touring career was quite short in America, but you know was Toto did Tina Turner for for a bit, did Heart for a while, and then Journey too, you know. So kind of kings of the game, you know. It was uh, you know was was a wonderful learning curve for me. That's awesome. Well, John, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sitting in today. This was an absolute pleasure. And before we break, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? What you got going on? Any tours coming up? What's happening? Yeah, I mean, watch out, really. I mean, this film, I, I took a year off to to make this movie. It's called Unconquered. And it's the story of, uh, it's a documentary, but a drama documentary about two soldiers who were severely injured both mentally and physically in the line of duty and the film charts their journey back through sport to uh, some semblance of normality and uh, it's kind of carrying the flag you know San Elmo's 1985 was you know man in motion about a guy wheeling around the world and Unconquered is this continuing wave in the flag you know and trying to make the wheelchair and and also mental health that's the new thing isn't it that you know we i mean in the 80s we never considered mental health you know it was people were off their heads on coke or, or whatever <laughs> yeah. but, but that was it you know but you know it's difficult the world you know a lot of self-analysis and uh it's a tough place out there and the thing that energizes me to keep going and keep doing it is to kind of in some small way trying to you know help make a difference you know well, that is very, very awesome. And again, thank you so much. God bless you both. To both Chris's. Great talking with you, man. No more lonely nights With a restless heart Roll the dice Make a brand new start When the world's a new got I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with John Parr and Chris and I got to have a conversation about that conversation, which we're going to do right after a few quick words from our sponsors. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Do you like to laugh, geek out on music, and learn all about that band or artist who had that one song back in the day, but then seemed to fall off the face of the earth? If so, you need to subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Together with an array of interesting and hilarious guests, we do a weekly dive into one-hit wonders like Eiffel 65's Blue, Crayshon's Gucci Gucci, EMF's Unbelievable, Delamitri's Roll to Me, Los Del Rio's Macarena, Musical Youth's Past the Duchy, and even Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind. So are you subscribed to One Hit Thunder or what? 
As Desiree would say, you gotta be. And as K7 would encourage, you gotta come, baby, come, and join in on the fun of the One Hit Thunder podcast. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is The All Right, a punk band based out of Los Angeles, California, consisting of twin brothers Johnny and Jamie Reyes. Their first full length in loving memory was just released. You can find all their stuff on Bandcamp. Here's a snippet of their song, Reignite. Try, try, try again. Get off your knees, rise up again. Try, try, try again. Don't quit now, just drag to this. The Rap with Chris and Chris. So, Chris, how many times did you get chills during that episode? Like the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> like, what an inspiring, uplifting story. Just makes sense that this song feels so triumphant and so uplifting, right? It is. It literally is. The subject matter is, I wish that I knew that story. I've always liked this song. I got to tell you one thing about this song real quick, just from a personal perspective. You know how the first time I ever heard this song was? This is the strangest way to hear a song for the first time, was as a kid, eight or nine years old, something, I was taking piano lessons. And in my first ever book, like your basic book, you're talking like Mary Had a Little Lamb type stuff, St. Elmo's Fire was in there. Just like a real basic version of St. Elmo's Fire. (laughs) So the first time I ever heard the song was from learning how to play it on piano. Now I love the actual song, but I just thought that was cool. But man, oh man, I counted four times I got chills during this Four different parts where he's talking about Rick Hansen and his Man in Motion tour. Like, I didn't know about that. That's incredible. It's, yeah, I had read about it, but I kind of just, I didn't think it was the whole, I don't know. I just, maybe I downplayed it in my mind. I I, I had read a lot, as I do, while researching these episodes. But just to hear it uh, uh, from John's perspective and how it all came about, it's absolutely fascinating. As well as, I think another goosebump moment for me was just... I'm just proud of of this show, Chris. I'm proud of what we created, and and you know, I talked about connecting the dots. We've had so many players that were involved yeah. in this song that either we've had on the show or or we've talked about. And I mean, what a what an all star lineup! It doesn't get any better than this. It's a crazy lineup on this song. I didn't realize that either. And the connections to past guests that we've had, or like you said, at least people we've discussed. We've discussed David Foster in the past. Obviously, we had David Page on here. Um, and just, yeah, how the way everything ties together is insane. Absolutely. And, you know, these guys, again, John talked about they had messed with a, a bunch of different ideas. And then he's like, no, I, I want to write something else. I, I, I don't, I'm not feeling these songs that David Foster had, had lying around or whatever. And they went in and he, you know, how many times have we heard this? Like a broken record. They went in and, and they just they knocked this thing out in a couple hours. It's amazing. Yeah. And it, he said each idea they had was like, oh, that's good. He liked what they had. But David Foster kept pushing it like, no, we can do better. We can do better. And like you said, it sounds like in the matter of an hour or two, they wrote 
this incredible song and then got all the best all the best players on the track and even you know what John Parr accomplished not only as a songwriter but also the tours he did are insane. Like <laughs> he did the tour with Toto, toured with Tina Turner with Heart. What was it? he said? Another yeah, one with too. Journey oh. as well. Journey, jeez, could you ask for four better tours than that? That's crazy. No, and 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 John, you know, he had been been slugging it out for years. He he, he admitted that he was kind of broke a couple years before the record came out, and it was just one thing after the other. He just kept meeting these people that was his connect the dots moment he's just like i can't believe this it's just you know every time i turn around it's it's i never in a million years you know dreamt that i would be working with this caliber of of talent it's also really awesome how he was able to write a song that not only told the story of rick hansen and also kind of told his own story in a way he he said that it's kind of like telling his story like you said he went from being broke to writing this song with all the best musicians you could imagine doing these huge tours only in the matter of a couple years and also fit perfectly with the movie St. Elmo's Fire you know it was just just the lyrics were just vague enough that anyone could relate to them whatever your mountain you're climbing is whatever you're working towards you could relate to this song I think that's songwriting at its best yeah and i was kind of surprised what john uh had said about you know movie companies film film companies not wanting the title of the movie in a song and then i was like wait a second the first one that comes to mind is ghostbusters but then you think about like back to the future there's no song that says back to the future it was power of love or back in time so that was an interesting take yeah i was curious as to why that was because your instinct would be like oh you want the song for the movie to be called the same thing as the movie, but maybe you brought up Ghostbusters. Well, Ghostbusters, I mean, I like Ghostbusters, but it's kind of like a cheesy song, right? Yes. And maybe you wanted a serious coming of age movie or whatever you would consider St. Elmo's Fire. You don't don't want people to have that same association. You want to have the song stand on its own and be this hit song from the soundtrack. Maybe that's the thinking that they don't want people to think that it's cheesy, that it's almost like, you know, I I bring this up a million times, Ghostbusters 2. (laughs) Bobby (laughs) Brown had the rap where he literally tells the plot of Ghostbusters 2. I I guess maybe they don't want that, that sort of thing. So maybe that's why it is, Uh, but who knows? Yeah, I just, I I don't know what else to say about this this track. It was, you know, you would have been, you'd have been about, four and a half when this song five when it came out but i lived it i i was i was there when it came out uh you know mtv played this video to death it it was everywhere one of the biggest songs and and to get to sit across from john and talk about it was just was so cool it was very cool i have to let everybody know because i told you this as soon as we got off i love this guy john he (laughs) was so he was so happy to be talking to you smiling i just i just felt like I guess I feel like this a lot of times on this show, but I I just felt like, oh, I could be friends with this guy. I would like to go hang out with this guy. He was just so cool and, and open about what the song was about and seemed very happy to be talking about it. And I would hope to be 
you know, what is, has it been 40 years since this song came out? Uh, it was released in 85, so coming upon 40 years soon. Yeah, 38 years. Almost there. I hope that songs that I've written, I will be that happy 40 years after to talk about them as well. I think that that's really, really cool. I mean, John even said that sometimes it's hard to have a hit of this magnitude when you're at your peak in every way, because then you're always chasing it. Yeah. And I think you're only option really is to embrace it and be like, you know, I I did this and that doesn't, that's not saying anything else about any other music he's written, but to accomplish that and have a song that's touched so many people, that's just incredible. Yeah. And we not only like to be John's friend, we like to be your friend too. So make sure you join our Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. It's a lot of fun. We talk about uh, uh, stuff related to the episode. We talk about a bunch of stuff in there. Chris is always putting up little polls. It's a lot of fun. So please join. It's free to do so. And we'd love to have you. And I want to thank this week's guest, John Parr, for sitting in with us. And we'll see you next week. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe Grind podcast.